Well, uh, welcome back to uh, Genesis. Uh, we're going on well through this series. And thank you, Ian, for looking after the passages last week, especially as we looked at this covenant, uh, this marriage relationship, this, this contract that God is drawing up for his people in a lot more detail. And over the last three weeks, we've been looking at God spending a lot of his time sort of spinning out this covenant between him and his people. It's worth a quick recap as we get into today's passage. For this covenant starts with God's promise. Uh, Three promises uh, to be exact. I will promise you land, people and blessing, Abraham, you and your wife. That's what we read in Genesis Uh, God will, for nothing that Abraham or Sarah has done or nothing that they are, give Abraham incredible promises purely because that is the kind of God that he is. One who loves to bless people when they don't deserve it and have done nothing to earn it. And so Abraham, understanding that these promises are humanly impossible, being as he is with a barren wife, living in a land that is full of other people groups, he trusts God. He takes him at his word. He believes that God will do what seems impossible. And that belief, however faltering that belief is, is credited to him as righteousness. In New Testament parlance, this man then, Abraham, is saved through nothing that he has done, simply because he trusts in God's promises. And he is saved not because he's inherently good. He brings nothing to the table in terms of righteous deeds before God's promising. And neither is he saved because he has a lot of trust or really strong faith. In fact, if anything, his trusting has been poor, hasn't it? He slips up time and time again. We've seen that first by pawning off his wife twice uh, to protect himself. And then by allowing Sarah to try and take control of God's promises using Hagar, her servant, to be a surrogate mother to Abraham's line. He has significant wobbles and significant issues. He tries to take matters into his own hands and through godless means. But despite this, God loves Abraham. He reiterates his promises to Abraham and Abraham trusts God. He comes back to trusting God time and time again and he is saved. You see, this covenant of promise, this relationship that is started between God and man is all of God. God alone walks through the cut animal pieces of the covenant process in, verse, in chapter 15, if you remember. God alone does all of the promising. But on Abraham's trusting in this God, after God's incredible grace to Abraham, then comes the second stage of this covenant process, and that is circumcision. The signing on the dotted line, as as Ian said last week, the sign in the flesh that Abraham and his people are in relationship with God. It is the the wedding ring after the marriage vows are spoken. It is a sign of the desire to want to be obedient to and faithful to and in relationship with this loving God who has done everything for the salvation of his people. And as Abraham is asked to circumcise everyone in his family to to, to bind this contract, so he obeys and he trusts in God again. Yes, I will, he says, grumbling perhaps, still not sure what's going to happen. We saw a little of that last week. But as we read this morning, he relentlessly does what God says. His whole household is circumcised. They are now wed to this God of promise. And as we see the timeline of this covenant, so as Paul reminds us in Romans, we see that the circumcision does not make someone righteous with God. The circumcision mark did not make Abraham righteous. Rather, the circumcision of Abraham was a sign that he was already right with God. Through nothing that he had done, but through everything that God had promised. 
God brings everything to the table of this relationship with his people. Abraham brings nothing. All Abraham can do is trust, bringing him to saving faith, and now allowing him to bear the mark that says he belongs to God, made righteous by God alone through his promises alone. And that brings us to Danae's passage and the question of, well, what happens next? For the covenant is now established. The relationship between God and Abraham um, is now there. His, his entire household, it's all been signed in flesh, if you like. But there's still something missing. And that is the promises that still have yet to be made reality. What happens next? And that brings us nicely on to the latter half of 17 into chapter 18. As the question now is, how is God going to deliver on his promises? How is he going to work on behalf of his people? Well, to answer that question, there are two points this morning. And the first is, in fulfilling his salvation promises, God will deliberately never work through human means. To fulfill his salvation promises, God will deliberately not work through human means. Now, what's going on there? Well, we've already seen that in Genesis so far, haven't we? For Abraham's uh, son Ishmael, he's the child born to Abraham through Hagar. Sarai panicked, and she's trying to kickstart the line physically through Hagar, and Ishmael was born. But, but, but God isn't going to use Ishmael. He is not the human son that God wants. God will produce his own son somehow. In other words, it is eminently clear, as, as we begin to look at this passage in a bit more detail, that human efforts, as we've seen before, to secure God's blessings are a dead end, and God will not allow them to flourish. And we've not only seen this with, with, with Hagar and Ishmael, it actually works all the way through Genesis up until this point. Abraham miraculously defeats five armies, if you remember, with only a few hundred men. That was, as we saw through Melchizedek, a work of God outside the normal feats of a human. And not only do we see that in Genesis, but as we see today, we'll see it written large over the whole of the Bible. God will do miraculous things for the sake of keeping his salvation promises. He constantly uses non-human means to bring about his promises. This is how God works. And the question is, why? Well, our passage this morning starts where Cheeks uh, ended off last week. We've overlapped, as I said, a little bit uh, with where we were last week. And it starts with the, the renaming of Sarai in verse 15. Abra Abram has become Abraham, and Sarai is now named as Sarah, and she's become princess. That's what Sarah means. And we can see why God has changed her name uh, to princess, because of what's going to come from her. Verse 16, I will bless her, says God, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations, Kings of peoples shall come from her. You see, here in verse 15 is the third reminder of God's promise to Abraham and Sarah by God in this chapter alone. And as God keeps repeating the same promises again and again, as Ian said last week, so he adds new things to it, or he bolsters them up a lot more. And the thing that is now highlighted here for the first time is the royal element of this new family line. You won't just have one nation, says God, you will have many nations. And you won't just have any family line, but a royal one. Nations will come from her, kings 
will come from her, my princess, says God. And what is the reaction of Abraham? Will he trust God? Well, verse 17, he, he, he literally falls on his face laughing. This is literally an LOL moment, a, a ruffle moment, rolling on the floor, laughing, a laugh of incredulity at the ridiculousness of it all. He, 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 and it's followed by another wobble, isn't it? Verse 17, really, God? <laughs> I'm 100, Sarah's 90. Oh, that Ishmael, the only flesh and blood human thing that I have might live before you. Come on. Abraham, now named the father of a multitude, ignores the promises given to Sarah as God is speaking them, and he pushes Ishmael forward and says, come on, God, play the game, take him. He cannot get over his desire, Abraham, for him to have some kind of human control of the promises of God. Can you see? It's, it's everything that he wants to do. It's this knee-jerk reaction. Using um, Hagar as a surrogate was entirely the way to go. As far as Abraham was concerned, it just made sense. This is laughable, God. Come on. I have a son. Sarah's too old. Please use what I have produced to fulfill your promises. Doesn't it just make sense? Sarah having a, a royal family line, hysterical tears. Come on. And so in verse 19, we come to a really key word in the whole of this passage and it is two letters long, God said, no. No. As, as a commentator said, as I uh, read this week, this is the most important no in the history of the Bible. He said it is a deliberate and uncompromising divine negative. Abraham, no. You've got to stop this. This is not how I work. No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant of his offspring forever. But Ishmael is not forgotten in the goodness and kindness of God forever. As for Ishmael, God says, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him. I'll make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes. I will make him into a great nation but he will not be my son of promise. He won't be made into many nations, nor he will be made into a nation of kings, merely princes. That specific promise goes to Isaac, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear with you at this time next year. Now there's a real time frame on this promise. I promise you by this time next year, Sarah will have a son and he will be my son of promise. So why is it the child of promise to be born miraculously through Abraham and Sarah is the one through, through whom God will accomplish his promise of, of what? Of a people out of all the nations of the earth who belong specifically to God who will inherit his eternal promise. It's enormous. To be his people forever, to receive a land which will be eternally theirs. And God deliberately will not work through the possible human means of Ishmael. He just will not do it. He will only work through Isaac, the son of the promise of faith brought about by his own supernatural work. No, Abraham, I will do this. It will very much be that Isaac, the child of promise, will be in all intents and purposes, 
my son. Now, if you think about it, this is all quite perplexing and very humbling, isn't it? Paul the Apostle picks this up in, in Romans 9, 8 to 9. Don't, don't turn to it. Let me just read it. Um, he says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted only as his offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. He picks on that very verse. And I can imagine someone saying to this, uh, we've been having a, a, a missions week here. Cheeks and I have been speaking at the Glasgow Sea uh, Missions Week, and we've been able to answer lots of questions. And I can imagine this being one of the questions that a student would ask if I was reading this out. But this is just so unfair. How come God does it this way? It is so hard to believe in something that humanly is impossible. Isn't that just unfair? I think that's what Abraham is possibly getting at here. But, but I have a son. I have a family line now. Isn't it too much to, to, to ask for you to use Ishmael? Is it too much of you to ask me to trust in the impossible? Without any practical or physical element to it, why does it have to be that way, God? Why do you choose to work through miraculous means by faith and not human means by sight? Well, there are two answers to that question. Quickly, the first, have you noticed? The first, God promises to bless Ishmael and prosper him through the human line. We're only looking at this very quickly, but it's very helpful. God provides for Ishmael, and he himself is an answer to prayer from the God who hears. And, and in God's goodness, God continues to allow humanity to flourish on the earth outside from his promised line of salvation. God protects and provides, and in his extraordinary mercy, God allows the people of the world to flourish under his care and protection. This is God's sovereign and common grace. God is not vindictive. The son of flesh, although not the son that God wants, is the son that he protects and loves. He is blessed unbelievably. As we are and have been, as our friends are and have been, in their successes and wealth and comforts and joy and all their abundant families... And we're going to see through the redemption story of the Bible that this Gentile line is going to be the line that Jesus, the promise that comes through the line of Abraham, is going to save and engraft back into the line of Abraham. God is going to work incredible wonders for the human, fleshy, broken, perilous, but blessed line of Ishmael. So even the mistakes led by living a life by sight is not an opportunity for God to crush or negate, but an opportunity for God to bring back and redeem. God is not vindictive in the way that he works, in his methodology of, methodology of, of choosing to work through miraculous means by faith. However, secondly, and, and, and this more importantly is where we get right to the heart of everything that is going on in Genesis 12 to 25, and that is that God has to bring his promises miraculously through his line because humanity is so fallen uh, we've been saying that it's it, it's hard sometimes jumping into a series halfway through a book but we have been careful to, to trace back as, as what's been going on in genesis and we need to do that again here as we really burrow into what god is doing here in in chapter 17 uh, and what has gone on so far in genesis well, what has gone on so far in Genesis is Genesis 3, 1 to 5. 
the uh, incredible rebellious nature of the heart of man, as Adam and Eve in their brazenness, they, they lay held to the throne of God itself, demanding to be like him. We want to be God in your world, to know as you know, to rule as you rule, they shout. And God says, no. And what's gone on so far is is, is chapter 6, verse 5 in Genesis. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, the summary verse of the whole of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Every intention and inclination of the thoughts of man was only evil all the time. And God was sorry that he had ever made mankind on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. What has gone on so far on Genesis is chapter 6, the flood. And God cleansing the earth of wickedness. And after the flood, chapter 9, verse 21, where we see God um, noticing no change in the heart of man. As God's new start, Noah defiles himself, repeating the pattern of behavior before him. Where, chapter 8, verse 21, the intentions of men's heart were still only evil all the time. And what has gone on so far in Genesis is Genesis 11, verse 4. With humanity believing they could build a tower to God, we will become God. Let us make a name for ourselves in the earth. Let us be God in your world. It's Genesis 3, 1 to 5 all over again. Can you see? What is going on with Abraham then is that God is pursuing another fresh start. But a new kind of fresh start. And when Abraham offers to God that God might pursue his agenda to have a people belonging to him to be eternally his in his presence and his eternal new creation forever. When Abraham says, oh, should we do it through Ishmael, a human way? God says, no. And what a relief that God says no. Because that has never worked. It has never worked with a human restart to my world. It didn't work with Adam and Eve. It didn't work with Cain and Abel. It didn't work with Noah. It didn't work with the Babelites. It just doesn't work that a human can restart this race. It just doesn't work that a promise given by human means, pursued for human ends, fulfilled in human flesh alone, can ever produce the promise and the blessing that is strong enough to be able to hold and redeem and eternally bless the sons of Adam. Can't you see, Abraham? No. I will not take Ishmael. I will do it. I will do it through my means. From outside the heart and inclinations and activity and forethought of man, I will produce a son and he shall be the carrier of my promise supernaturally, miraculously. God is not being unfair by keeping his promise miraculously by faith. Quite the opposite. It would be unfair if he did it any other way. It is out of his incredible love and care that he does keep his promise through miraculous means, for any other human way is going to fail, and we're lost forever. God deliberately will not take the same route again. The problem of the human heart is far too big and far too entrenched for God to work through humanity. It requires a miracle worked by God alone. And we will play no part in it. He will simply not allow it. God says no. What if God had said yes? 
Well, think about it. We would never have been confronted with the reality of our broken, sinful heart. This deliberate, divine, uncompromising negative is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And we are grateful that God didn't give in to the human son of Abraham. Otherwise, we would think we were good enough and we could achieve greatness for God, grasping at the promises ourselves, never dealing with the arrogance of our hearts. God is gracious with us in saying, no, you can't do it. I've got to. Much like an impetuous child, never being told no, but rather allowed to live rampaging through life as he is by, by cowardly parents, unable to stand up to him because it's just so much easier. It's less hassle dealing with his heart. Here in Genesis 17, we find no cowardice on the part of God in the face of this human solution that Abraham offers. He doesn't give in to Abraham. He doesn't give in to Ishmael, the on the face of it, easy solution. He is God. And he will not deliver on his promise for a new creation with a people belonging to him by feeding our ego and allowing us to have something to do with it, allowing us to think we have anything to offer. He will not allow humanity again to lay hold of the blessing. It will not come through Ishmael, the humanly possible means. In his goodness, God shows Ishmael the human line incredible grace and protection. But in order to save that human line, God insists on grasping the nettle, the nettle of deeply flawed human nature, and break its back and start again anew and afresh. God will not allow his purpose set out in Genesis 1 and 2, his, his desire for people to dwell with him in perfect rest to be wrecked by an undealt with human heart. That's profoundly humbling, isn't it, as we think about it? And as we think about it, it also leads to incredible anger. How dare you tell me I bring nothing to this? We see it with Cain, don't we, where he kills his brother Abel, who brought the best of his flock to God through faith, and Cain brought the worst of his grain by sight. And God commends Abel and condemns Cain, and Cain is furious, and he murders his brother. How dare you make your promises outside of what I can give an offer, says Cain effectively. It's what we're told about Ishmael back in chapter 16, verse 12. Have you read about what Ishmael will become? He will become a wild donkey of a man. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. Ishmael is just an angry man in the line of angry men who will produce more angry men. And the murderous rage of Cain and the fury of Ishmael is repeated over and over again all the way through the Bible story. But what is it in the Gospels that produces such anger in the New Testament? Well, it is Jesus' insistence on exposing the fallenness of humanity and the truth that you cannot work to achieve God's promises of salvation for you, no matter how good you look or how hard you try it's a stumbling block to the Jews. It is foolishness to the Gentiles. We hate it. And what is the response to that of the religious leaders? Crucify him. How dare he? Jesus must be destroyed. God is profoundly good to humans, allowing us to live and flourish and be blessed, to enjoy his incredible creation. Why? Should he do that when we are so wicked? 
but he will not work through human means to save us or to secure human salvation. He refuses to for the sake of the people he loves. And so can you see that this one word, no, should do all sorts of things to us in our lives today? It should produce in us a right suspicion of anything that man made, that, that, that anything man made that promises what God promises. Any other religion, philosophy, construct, ideology that promises some kind of saving or some kind of salvation, well, well none of them are going to help me. To every single one of them, God has said, no, they are not being used for my promises of, of salvation. It should also conjure up in us an equally passionate cynicism, if that isn't a contradiction in terms, to, to any other philosophy, movement, or, or program that promises utopia now on this planet. You can get it all now. You can achieve everything now. You can achieve something eternal and really lasting, where we can reach perfection now. To every single one of them, God says, no, they are not being used as vehicles for my utopia and perfection that only I can give, that only I have promised. It should also produce in us a realism about the anger with which this gospel, the, the redemption promises in Christ given by grace alone through faith alone will be met with as we hold those promises of God out to, to, to our community. The promises of God which cannot be earned which cannot be achieved, they cannot be won, they cannot be bought. They can only be received through repentance and faith under the acceptance that we are, we are angry failures in the line of angry failures. A message which we will be hated for by the world and most particularly by the very religious. Point one, praise God that in the salvation promises of God, God will deliberately not work through human means. And that brings us on to the positive of point two. Instead, God works his promises through undeserved grace and favour and goodness as he does the impossible his way and his way alone. God works his promises through undeserved grace and favour and goodness as he does the, the, the impossible his way alone. And this is profoundly humbling and a humility that actually leads to salvation. For if human religion and human agency is a dead end in terms of human salvation, then the only thing that can help us become beneficiaries of the promises of salvation is through the humanly impossible things that only God can do. It's got to be. There's nothing else. And the key to seeing what it is God can do is found in chapter 18, verses 1 to 15. And we see the point made by Abraham's request in verse 3 and God's question in verse 14. Now, verses 1 to 8 uh, of chapter 18, we find Abraham, don't we, um, engaged in feverish activity. That's a lot of hurried work um, Abraham puts in when these three guests turned up at his tent. It's the heat of the day. Um, three men turn up, and one of them is the Lord himself. That This activity of Abraham is showing his devotion to the Lord, who he recognizes. And he goes into overdrive to make sure that these men are well-fed and looked after. Look at all the running he does. Verse 2, he runs from the tent. He bows low. He begs them to stay so that they can get a, a, a morsel of food. It ends up being a whole meal. 
water for their feet so they can rest. He then hurries quickly to the tent, hollers at Sarah to make a selection of cakes, and, and then he runs to the herd. He snatches a poor, unsuspecting calf, a, a, a good one. He gives it to a young man who prepares it quickly. He brings it all back to the three men, and he stands over them um, as, as they eat. But the point here is in verse 3. What does Abraham say to God? O oh Lord, if I have found favor, found grace in your sight, do not pass by your servant. He recognizes the Lord here. He recognizes that one of these men is a man sent from God himself, possibly another Melchizedek figure, God himself in human form. And, and Abraham says, astonishingly, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And God does not pass by him. Now, if um, you've read Genesis so far, the, the I, have, I have found favor motif should really ring alarm bells. For who else in Genesis has found favor with God? Only one person, and that person is Noah. Noah found favor in the sight of God, chapter 6, verse 8. And so right up front in chapter 18, having been given the great divine negative through the root of Ishmael, we find Abraham received the divine positive from God. He has found favor in the sight of God. And this story is deliberately contrasted over and against the false start of Noah, where the problem of the human heart was never really dealt with. That ended in Babel and, and the scattering and separation of the nations. But here's another fresh start with Abraham, the man who has found favor with God. But how is this fresh start going to end? And the point is underlined now that it will effectively, it will end differently in verses 9 to 15, which is highlighted by God's questioning of Abraham. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so she laughed. How can I bear a son? The laughter of Abraham in chapter 17 is now matched with the laughter of his wife in chapter 18. The same chortle of exasperated incredulity. And you can understand, again... She's first heard of this promise at 77. 13 years later, it seems absurd. She's now 90. Her husband is 99. She laughs. He wouldn't. And the Lord says, why is Sarah laughing? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Here then is the point. In salvation, as God commits himself to his people, in an everlasting covenant to be their God and have them as his everlasting people to, to give them his everlasting place. God deliberately does it through an impossible route to show that this fresh start for humanity is undeniably his work and his work alone. It is not a human solution. It will now be a divine solution. Nothing is impossible for God. And of course, as we've seen, we've had many fresh starts in Genesis. We've been through them all, after the fall with Cain and Abel, after the flood with Noah particularly, and they all failed. And they didn't fail because God failed. That's really important. They failed because God was proving to humanity that we couldn't do it. In our hubris, he points back to history and goes, see, you just couldn't do it. 
These were deliberate fresh starts by God, but he has to make it known and clear to us that we just cannot do it. We cannot be a part of this miraculous line to redeem ourselves. But here is a fresh start with the child of promise, Isaac, which means he laughs. Whose very name will remind God's people through their entire existence that their existence is only on the basis of supernatural divine intervention. So that everyone who said, I am a child of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they are reminded in that moment that supernaturally, They are a part of a work that only God alone could do to gather a people who will be his people for eternity and he, their God. This is wonderful. Locked in right at the foundation of the Bible story as we learn these key principles about God and humanity, God will not allow us to achieve his blessings for eternity through human roots. We are fundamentally flawed. And that flaw has to be dealt with. And he will provide a supernatural solution in order to summon the people who will belong to him and will inherit his eternal blessing and his place for eternity. I wonder what this would have meant for an Old Testament believer at the time. Um, I I heard this from someone else and I quite liked it, so I'm using it. The the Old Testament believer, imagine being in the pub and having a conversation like we would over the Bible. So you call yourself a Jew, what does that mean? Oh, it means that, that, that God is the loving creator of the world. We human beings are deeply rebellious against God. We're fundamentally flawed. There is something in our heart and we cannot but rebel against God. And we want to be him. We want to be on his throne. And God's got to judge that. He can't allow that kind of sin to go unpunished, a sin that will destroy the whole world if it did go unpunished. But extraordinarily, out of his goodness and kindness, he has promised to act supernaturally. And I am a part of the family which started by God alone giving life to a 90-year-old barren womb through a 100-year-old man. Only God can do it. I'm a product of his work. I'm a living and breathing example of supernaturally begun family. I'm the son of Isaac. God acts supernaturally, and he works through impossible means so that all the glory can alone be his. And this fresh start really does work as he deals with the problem of a supremely wretched heart. Now, this principle runs all the way through the Bible, doesn't it? Consider Gideon, the judge. God saved the people through him. He was the weakest, most hopeless man from the smallest tribe. God saved the entirety of Israel through him. How does God save his people in the time of kings? Through through David, the shepherd boy, the last and most unimpressive of Jesse's son, defeats a giant by the hand of God. And most supremely is this scene in Luke chapter 1, where we close. For who else, like Abraham, like Noah, is highly favoured, and who is supernaturally a part of God's salvation promises for his people? Luke 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be the son of the most high God, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, well, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, verse 37, nothing is impossible with God. Just as the divine negative should producing a profound suspicion about any human attempt to humanly secure an eternity with God, and a deep cynicism about anybody, secular or religious, who claims to be creating heaven on earth, and an absolute realism about the anger that that will follow, the divine promise that nothing is impossible with God should produce in us profound confidence and trust that God has promised supernaturally to make it possible with the problem of the human heart to be dealt with. And ultimately, this is promised to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. As God brings life into a virgin's womb and a child is born and goes to his death and rises from the grave to supernaturally bring us to life in a new creation, the promised land, so that those who trust in Jesus who have the problem of their heart dealt with, can dwell with God in eternity forever as his people. Nothing is impossible with God. And so that should also produce in us an unshakable hope, shouldn't it? Nothing is impossible with God. How does a gospel church in the middle of a leafy suburb in Scotland, in the middle of a global pandemic, in the worst public health crisis the world has ever collectively known outside of wartime in the modern era, establish itself for the sake of the gospel when we can't even meet? Oh, nothing is impossible with God. How can we keep encouraging one another in the gospel, in our walk with the Lord, in our discipleship and prayer and evangelism? How do we make disciples of all nations when we can't even speak to our neighbor, let alone travel the world? Oh, nothing is impossible with God. How on earth can it be that this wretch of a human heart that sins so readily and so quickly and is so faithless being grafted into the line of Abraham. Oh, nothing is impossible with God. Because Isaac was born. Because God said no to Ishmael. Because Jesus, the greater Isaac, was born. Not of blood or a husband's will, nor of the will of man, but of God. He did it supernaturally and it works and so as a christian i no longer merely say i am in the line of abraham isaac and jacob but now i am in the line of christ god's son the perfect son the miraculous supernatural son who stepped into the breach of fallen humanity perfectly in order that i with my faithless and wretched heart could finally receive the promises of salvation and the eternal inheritance that they offer only because God alone did it. Well, let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, God, thank you and praise you so very much for your gospel to us this morning, through your promises given to Abraham. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your son Isaac, who was born miraculously by your hand. Thank you, Heavenly Father, above all, that the Lord Jesus Christ, your son, was born miraculously by your hand in order that we may have a way back 
to the Holy Father God, with whom we can have no relationship because we are so sinful. Heavenly Father, thank you that you did not use us for your purposes, but you have brought us into your line through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his life, his righteousness, his death and resurrection, which is now all conferred unto us for those of us who call on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Father God, for every ear that is hearing this this morning, I pray very much that we would know this, that we would not be quick to hunt for your promises through earthly means, but we would trust resolutely in you and in your son. Well, for those who don't know you this morning, may it be that they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for their, the security of their future inheritance, for these promises that will belong to them. Father God, we pray all these things with great thanksgiving in your strong name. Amen.